Hi, Ivory Tower Boiler Room listeners. This is Andrew Rimby. I am so excited to present the last episode before our holiday break. This is the last episode of the Ivory Tower Boiler Room interviews, and then you will have a special True Crime and Academia episode tomorrow, the 21st. So please do listen to Mary DePiffy's True Crime and Academia, and then once hers comes out on the 21st, we are on a two-week holiday break. So we come back again on January 10th with a really special interview that I actually am about to record with Mary DePippi soon. So not going to tell you who the guest is, but you'll start to see a lot of information about who we're featuring and how it ties into a new format for our book club. So I'll give you a hint. Go to our Instagram page at Ivory Tower Boiler Room and you will see all the information. As this episode is being released, this is a behind the scenes secret. I'm actually recording this on Friday. Um, I am driving right now with Mary DePippi to Atlantic City as this episode is being released. So it couldn't be better timing. Hmm. I wonder if this is a coincidence or not, <laughs> but there will be a lot of promo material in Atlantic city that will tie into this episode. You'll see some of the locations that are mentioned. So again, make sure you follow our Instagram. We also have a new baby TikTok. Um, at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. Um, we will post a few TikToks because I'm actually with Jaron too in Atlantic City. So the whole team, we're in Atlantic City for a few days. Uh, so it's a well-deserved work trip. We have been so grateful for all of you during this year. Thank you for being part of our community. Thank you for sharing our podcast. Thank you for liking it. Remember, review it on Apple Podcasts. Um, make sure you follow us. We have a Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room. And we have a new format coming for our Facebook. So I'm going to hold off on telling you about our Facebook because it will come back in a completely revitalized form in the new year. That and we also have a Patreon that we're going to release in the new year. Oh, I'm so excited. Um, and we're going to have merchandise. Okay, so there's so many developments happening in the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. We are revising our website, ivorytowerboilerroom.com. So, yeah, we're hard at work during the break, but, you know, we're going to give ourselves some self-care time, which I hope all of you are as well. Um, okay, so I got all the updates out of the way. Today's episode is really special I am originally from South Jersey. Now I live on Long Island. Um, I've been on Long Island for about eight years. Yeah, eight years. Um, and kind of consider myself straddling between being a New Yorker and a New Jerseyan. So I call myself um, a New Jerseyan Yorker, <laughs> which doesn't roll off the tongue easily. But it meant so much to interview the author of Boardwalk of Dreams about a city that I've known since I was a child going to the New Jersey Teachers Convention. My mother is 
a business high school teacher. So I would go and accompany her and my dad would take me to different areas of Atlantic City. And I, you know, have so many friends who are either in Atlantic City or in the surrounding area. Um, I just find my tranquility in Atlantic City it has such a vibrant history. You'll hear all about it in this episode. Um, Dr. Brian Simon teaches at Temple University in Philadelphia, which again is another one of my favorite cities. Um, I won't tell you if I like New York City or Philly better. I will not decide. That's like, you know, choosing between your two favorite children, which I wouldn't know. I don't have children, but <laughs> I have a feeling it would be a good apt metaphor. Okay, so here is a teaser of what's to come in Boardwalk of Dreams, a history of Atlantic City with Dr. Brian Simon and a very happy, peaceful, healthy, and empowering holiday season for all of you out there. Atlantic City hits its own kind of crisis in the 50s and 60s, desperate for a change. It sort of gambles on gambling. And it's worth mm -hmm. reminding your listeners that when gambling first comes to Atlantic City, it's the only place east of the Mississippi where you can legally gamble. And, you know, the casinos make a lot of money in those early years. But what doesn't happen, and, and I think it's important to point this out, is, well, the casinos make money and money doesn't necessarily revive the city. Mm -hmm. And so the city itself, I think, you know, by the time you discover it, right, is this constant kind of question about what it's going to become. Right. Yeah. Um, it's that Disneyfication it, that you talk about where um, it almost in a way reminds me of just the phases of Times Square throughout my lifetime. Welcome to the Ivory Tower Boiler Room. I am joined with, I will say, Dr. Brian Simon, and then I'll call him Brian after, but I want to honor uh, his title. Um, and I'm really excited because I had found out about Brian Simon first through his book, Boardwalk of Dreams, all about the history of Atlantic City in mostly the 20th century. Um, so, Hi, welcome, Brian, to the Ivory Tower. Uh, thanks room. for having me. I'm uh, glad to be here. I think you are actually our first um, South Jersey interview, except someone on the team who's also from where I grew up in Washington Township, near there. So I think you hail, if I remember, from your preface of the book, from Vineland. Is that right? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, which is a pretty large city, especially in that area of South Jersey. It's the largest um, city in New Jersey. 
area wise. Oh, um, area wise. Okay. But it, but it, I mean, Vineland had, when I was lived there, 50, 55,000 residents. So it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, tiny by any means. No, no. And, you know, where I grew up was about, I think now it's shooting to 50,000. And then I would say Cherry Hill, in my opinion, is like the largest. Right. Um, more feels like Philly, right? It's that, I think they call it an exurban or edge yeah. city. <laughs> um, but well, welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I mean, I think that what made Vineland interesting and so quintessentially South Jersey was not just its flatness and its sandy soil, but Vineland was really kind of too far from Philly. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a, um, a highway, even, you know, at, until 55 opened up that connected Vineland to Philly. And there's really not a particularly good way to get to the shore. So it was, you know, it was defined in some ways by its isolation. It, um, like, I didn't know anybody as a kid who commuted to Philly. Interesting. Okay. And see, I had the complete opposite because yeah. Washington Township, where as they say, everyone who's listening now, you're all really seeing behind the curtain. Um, <laughs> you know, don't stalk my family, but um, <laughs> that would be interesting. But um, <laughs> I grew up maybe 14 miles from Center City, 15, it depends. So almost all my neighbors, I would say half of the neighbors all commuted to Philly. So it was a real... Yeah commuter town i didn't know anyone who commuted to philly people worked in vineland and if anything maybe and this is sort of my family story their orbit after at least 1976 began to kind of gravitate towards the shore and towards atlantic city yeah so can you explain that brian because this really comes from um your memoir quality which is why i was so excited to read i mean i know the press is Oxford University Press. Yeah. Right? So it is an academic press, but it still has this really interesting public humanities. And that's well, at the Ivory Tower Boiler Room, this is a public humanities organization. And how did you know that you wanted to really put your own voice and experience into the opening of your book? Well, I should say from the start i was interested I, I was always interested in writing a book that could speak to academics and i would always say my mom right mm -hmm. um and that maybe they would read it at different in different ways but they could still sort of find a way into the book and oxford had at the time and i guess they still do what they call like they call them like crossover books and they're not quite trade books and they're not academic books and so that this book was positioned that way a little bit. Um, okay. I, though I don't think I would have written it any different if um, it was a kind of straight, you know, $120 <laughs> a copy academic book. I mean, I wrote it in a voice that made sense to me. And you asked about that preface. I don't, oh, like the beginning, I, I, don't, I didn't intend to write that that way when I started out, but what was important I felt like I had to say, and you'll understand this as somebody from South Jersey, people constantly ask me as I did the research, are you from Atlantic City? Hmm. And I knew that I needed at some point to kind of set my relationship to the place. 
I needed to say that that was important for the reader to know I thought and I thought that people who were really interested in Atlantic City would want to know that um, and so what I wanted to kind of explain was and I said it I had never lived in Atlantic City um, but really from the time that I first started going to graduate school it was an important part of my orbit, an important part of my life. And, and, and I experienced it in several ways that I explain, right? I experienced it as somebody just going there. Um, we, as I said, we would go, I spent a lot of my summers in Cape May when I was in like college and into grad school and the bars would close there at two or one and Atlantic City was 24 hours. So we would like drive up the expressway to Atlantic City and then um, I, I often went to the kind of casinos and the lounges with my parents mm -hmm. nightclub acts I remember yeah talk like, about uh, Louis Armstrong the, well no Louis oh no Prima. no Louis Armstrong is before yeah okay um, Armstrong did play Atlantic City but Louis Prima's sax player played all the time and then I had this other kind of curious sort of other connection to the places and my family started a business that was really centered around Atlantic City mm -hmm. and centered around not tourists, but kind of casino workers. And I had these two kinds of introductions to the place that kind of lured me in. But, but again, I think it's important that, well, I was familiar with it. I didn't grow up there. I didn't go to Atlantic City High School. And, and my experiences were at once close and removed. Um, and, you know, there's, I wanted the reader to know that and to understand there are virtues to that kind of stance mm -hmm. and maybe, maybe some vices, but, but I thought that was important to kind of say. Yeah. And that's a great positionality, right? That's a, it, well, what I was reading is you do this really intriguing cultural anthropology um, or, and cultural history, right? And I'm assuming, where did you um, go for your PhD work? I went to the University of North Carolina and I actually oh. started out, um, my first book is about the South. And um, I'm, I mean, I'm an urban historian. Some people know me as, but I've also written two books on the South and an edited collection. And so in some ways, I mean, this is the other part of the story that, um, in some ways, you know, I first entered Atlantic City as, and I think you, you could see this if you read the book, as somebody writing a history of Jim Crow in the North. Mm -hmm. That my training as a Southern historian helped me, I think, understand Atlantic City. And it helped me, I was attuned to the kind of Southernisms of the place, the, the workforces, roots in the south the way that southern culture was nationalized and for sale on the boardwalk as a way to kind of demean black people and elevate people who were passing as white mm. um and so um i i was recently asked to talk about my relationship to southern studies um and i talked about this book as a northern history of the south kind of right like um yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that was another kind of intellectual kind of entry point for me so yeah. so really this was my first foray into urban history um i read like i kind of taught myself urban history to write this book um but the the racial kind of 
dynamics of the place I had been studying for a long time. Yeah. And did you do your undergrad work in New Jersey or was that also? No, I went to UNC as an undergrad as well. Oh, wow. Okay. So you just yeah, went right to North Carolina. I actually, I, I got, I, I got a master's degree in England in labor history and I actually got, um, um, a master's at Yale in history. So I sort of took a little gap between and then came back to North Carolina to work on Southern labor history. Yeah. Did you know, um, cause I remember in the book you talk about at the beginning that your parents, because of your family's business, right? It's a truck. It was a truck car yeah, there's a rental car company okay. called Just Four Wheels. It's still in business. Um, oh, really? Okay. And maybe just moving. I, my brother, I think, um, was my brother and my father were partners, and my brother is in the process of kind of distancing distancing himself from the business. But it's kind of locally famous. Um, not many. It would be a way to check if somebody was really from Atlantic City if they 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 would know the company. Okay. Yeah. And I remember you saying it was right outside of Atlantic City in Epsikin. Yeah. Um, so I'm assuming if anyone knows the area, it's probably near the Hamilton Mall. Um, no, no. No, it's, oh, it's not that area. It's on Route 30. It's on Route 30 not ah, Route 40. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there's a good promo for the business if anyone needs uh, a rental rent. car service. But, or truck. Okay. Or a truck. Yeah. And as you explain, yes. you were growing up and you would sometimes have to go drop off the clients. And then that's when you would sometimes be in really different parts of Atlantic City. And I was really curious about what you said with the Jim Crow South and the North. And you even start with an oral history. I'm going to forget his name, but you start with an oral history with a Black man from the South who moves in the 1930s to Atlantic City, who went, just graduated from Howard. And even though he has a college degree, he's still discriminated against in Atlantic City and has to serve the white tourists. Right. And I think that history isn't shown a lot of Atlantic City. And I, I remember, wasn't it North and South? Like a certain section of Atlantic City had more black businesses, black owned businesses, and another section of Atlantic City was white owned businesses. And basically it was a segregated city throughout the Jim Crow era. Yeah, I mean, a couple of things about that. Um, my initial kind of entree into this part of Atlantic City was working one summer at a deli in Ventnor called Lou's. It was famous. Um, People like 75 and older did a lot. Like they, it was a place you'd get milkshakes, like happy okay. days. Like. And um, a guy from Vineland bought it and I worked for him for a summer. Um, all my coworkers in the kitchen were black, including one older guy who we became friends. And he sort of, he was my entree into, I, I mean, I had, as, as you mentioned, I been to a lot of Atlantic City, dropping off cars. My father would have me repo cars with him. Um, but Walt took me to his neighborhood. We would go to a bar after work and I would take him to mine. And and I we just got to know each other and and his story about coming from the South. So that, that kind of keyed me into other stories um, and, and, and the 
what that what black life looked like in Atlantic City. And yeah, Atlantic City was um, I think it's really important to recognize Atlantic City was assiduously segregated. It was not like this, this like de jure de facto distinction, you know, north south is kind of bullshit, right? Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, race determined where you could live, where you could shop. It determined where your kids went to school. It determined who you could vote for in, in kind of ward elections. And in fact, as I say, the ballots in the city were marked W for white and C for colored. Um, you know, and, and this, again, it was no accident, right? And, and I think the other story I tell, and as I collected these, you know, I began to kind of understand the importance of segregation to the city. If you were black in the wrong time of year and you showed up in the wrong place at the boardwalk or on the beach, it wasn't just like you knew to leave. The police would actually tell you, right? I mean, like it was enforced by the state. And I think that's like an important thing that we need mm -hmm. to recognize again, to explode this kind of distinction between regions. But, and what was interesting about Atlantic City and, and probably not surprising is that race was also at the center of the tourist experience. Mm. And if you think about it, essentially performing whiteness and performing blackness are what American popular culture, at least important strands of it are all about, right? I mean, if, if the birth of American popular culture is minstrelsy, hmm. vaudeville kind of retains it, right? And a place like Atlantic City puts it on display. Yeah, there's and a reason. Well, sorry, I was just gonna yeah. say, there's a reason it's called America's Playground, Atlantic City. Yeah, and, 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 and perhaps the most, and this is why I start the book where I did, which was with a black man who's a graduate of Howard who comes to Atlantic City, which at least it says how crappy conditions are in the segregated South, that even segregated Atlantic City is a little better. And the job he gets is pushing a rolling chair down the boardwalk. It so happens that almost everybody who rides the rolling chair is white dressed up out for the night and almost everyone who pushes is, is black and one of the points i was trying to make is key to atlantic city's success key to atlantic city being america's playground key to it being mm -hmm. disneyland before there was disneyland is that it offered a fantasy like all resorts do and the most compelling fantasy of atlantic city was that it allowed upper really mobile whites to declare their belonging in the American middle class. And what did that entail? That entailed the illusion of control over black labor, the, mm -hmm. the kind of clear statement of white supremacy, mm -hmm. the ability for a Jewish immigrant or the son of a Jewish immigrant, Italian, Irish, Polish, mm -hmm. kind of assert their belonging in this new middle class, spending, dressing up, having so much money that they don't have to walk down the flat space of the boardwalk that somebody can push them. But that somebody being black is really important to that story as well. Yeah, it's this type of escapism performing the part or what I was getting from reading your book. It's performing this part of um, the 1% in a way or this wealthy Gilded Age I mean, I do a lot of work in the 19th century for literature. So I'm really 
I'm actually teaching right now the House of Mirth, and then I'll teach the Great Gatsby. And I feel like Atlantic City is a really interesting t- place for the Gilded Age because um, I'm not sure I'm sh- if you've read E.L. Dr. Rose Ragtime, but um, right. And Atlantic City has a big yeah. importance in there because of Harry Houdini and Evelyn Nesbitt. And like you said, this vaudeville circuit that was really existing in the turn of the century and um, the train service to Atlantic City that would come from Manhattan and Philadelphia. Um, so like there were, right, there were these very upper class people in Atlantic City, but um, I think just like you're saying, it also served as this escapist fantasy, but again, relying on the service of people of color to, you know, allow white families to think that they um, were in this high society, but, you know, at the expense of people of color. Um, yeah, I, and and people of color were were employed, right? as service labor but as performers almost right Mm -hmm. that's that's one thing i think is really important and the second thing that's important is atlantic city was different from coney island Mm -hmm. and some in some significant ways and i think this is i say this in my book i think it's america's first great middle class resort Mm -hmm. and part of what's on display there right is a distinctly and you've linked it to literature a distinctly 19th and early 20th century kind of vision of the middle class that mm. sort of marries together leisure, consumption, performance, and whiteness. And, and Atlantic City allowed that all to happen like in one place. And that's why people, that's why people came, right? Like yeah. Steel Pierre um, was. Yeah. And I, one of the, I think this is like, you know, tourist places can be read, right? their ability to engage people is their ability to understand those people. And, and the, you know, the people who ran the boardwalk, like they're constantly tinkering, right? They're, and what they're tinkering with is, is trying to get people to spend money. But the way they, but the way they do that is in a sense, studying them, trying to understand them, trying to sort of, I don't even, I think they're reacting, right? Like they're, they're reacting to what this audience wants. And eventually they can't, you know, they can't react fast enough, right? Like other people can react better, but yeah, for a time, right? They are right there. And, you know, probably we sh- it's worth adding, right? We've sort of talked about kind of class mobility, right? We've talked about kind of racial performance. It's probably not, you know, not surprising and, and significant that Atlantic City is the place where the Miss America pageant is born, right? Like, this yeah, is talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, um, I mean, it's a it's a kind of classic Atlantic City story. I mean, if you know anything about the Miss America pageant, it's the it it begins in the 1920s, right? And it and you know it's linked to the kind of emergence of a kind of a kind of new sexuality, public sexuality of women, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I think most Great importantly, in a way, yeah, flapper esque, right? Mm-hmm. But most importantly, it's the weekend after Labor Day, and it's it's what the people who run the hotels are like. How can we get people to stay another week? Mm-hmm. And that's the first thing. And you know, the pageant fits with the moment um, in a lot of different ways it's all white 
it objectifies mm-hmm. women, right? Um, it, yeah. Um, yeah, and race becomes a really key moment with Vanessa Williams. Yeah, winning, but, and know, then forty years later. Yeah, interesting enough, right? The you know, um, Bess Meyerson, interestingly enough, is the first Jewish Miss America, right? Again, it's speaking to Atlantic City's ability to absorb kind of European ethnics and turn them into Americans. Yeah, and that's um, something we definitely have to touch upon is the Jewishness of Atlantic city. Cause it is yeah. so unique to the other shore towns in that area. But I mean, yeah. no, continue. Cause I don't want to let that go. Eventually. No, no, but I mean, so, right. So, but it's also a place of like, of kind of heteronormativity, right. Mm-hmm. Of, of allowing the breadwinners like strutting, right. With his wife, or partner or whatever it is on his arm. And often, you know, the story, you know, would buy like better clothes for the people around him to wear that were, you know, about them, but also meant to be reflections about him, um, reflections about his ability to provide, you know, the vacation, the, the clothes. And, you know, Atlantic City really comfortably did this. And, and it even allowed people to kind of, for a moment, jump outside of reality, right? It, it had crazy rides, right? It had wild shows, mm-hmm. right? The it music offers, Yeah, it yeah. offered a chance to go to the black side of town and slum if you wanted to. It offered a chance to see drag shows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, even, you know, and it had its own kind of queer subculture, right? Which is a kind of another story, but, but, but it sort of, its ability to kind of allow for the public stage and the backstage at the same time, again, you know, fit this middle-class moment, its aspirations and its contradictions at the same time. And I think, you know, this, this explains its kind of tremendous success and, and anchoring that success, as I argue in my book, is the maintenance of segregation, the maintenance of these racial scripts. Yeah. And, um, like going with the um, question I had about the Jewish American experience in Atlantic City, especially right that turn of the century, um, yeah. a lot of the short towns were very anti-Semitic. I mean, Stone Harbor is basically the bastion of waspness. In, <laughs> I mean, it still has this lingering legacy of the Philly mainline residents and their vacationing homes, but also, right, Ocean City, which is just a throwaway, was a Methodist um, boardwalk, Methodist community. Um, So like, and I don't see this history written a lot about. So that's why your book too, maybe there is another book about Jewishness and Atlantic City, but, you know, do you know why Brian, that Jewish Americans did really flock to Atlantic City. I mean, I think Atlantic City did what a certain kind of business model was. Atlantic City set its goals on being a mass resort. Mm -hmm. And that meant pretty early on sort of saying anybody who could pass for white was going to be welcome. And again, right, this is a kind of, right, symbiotic process here right so jews as you point out you know are upwardly mobile they're being pushed out of you know 
Stone Harbor, Ocean City. Huh. Atlantic City will let them in. They'll take those dollars, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as happens, right, it, um, a Jewish community develops in the city, encouraging more Jews to come. Um, there's Jewish guest houses who keep, you know, will keep kosher. Um, more Jews will come, right? And as Jews assimilate, they just move up the ladder, right? And yeah, so- Fetner you know, becomes- a very inclusive Jewish community, if I remember. Later, that's really oh, later. So, exactly. Yeah, when is that? Like story. Um, I just I don't totally know. Venner Down Beach actually. I, I think you're right about this. I mean, the one story I I remember like being really amazed by. I met one of the first. There were several Japanese business people on the boardwalk. I mean, going back to the teens, and they would run these oriental shops right um you know they were looking right out of edward said and one of them you know in the 40s moves to margate and i asked him why it was the only place i could get a house like margate was underdeveloped at that point and so i think there's some of that but but you know basically what happens is jews begin to move where their synagogues right i mean Mm -hmm. especially religious jews so down beach right which is we call chelsea has a synagogue pretty early on. So Jews move to that part. Like if you think about where Jews live in Atlantic City, religion, they Jews need to be near a synagogue, right? If they're going to be religious. So there's a syn- there's Beth Israel, which would move offshore, but that's in the North Inlet. And then the more religious synagogues are in Chelsea, right? So they create their own communities. And Chelsea by the 50s, the 40s and 50s is kind of looks like Ventnor essentially right and and as Jews leave the more kind of dense concentrated areas of Atlantic City there's like a little bit of like a like a suburban flight in on the island they begin to go to Chelsea which becomes like a really important part of the Jewish community but you know Atlantic City is interesting its white community is always Mm multi-ethnic the political machine Sheen in Atlantic City, Altman is Jewish, is the mayor, right? Um, and he's got an Irish, you know, Hurley's Irish, right? There's Italian. And they make sure like one of everybody is sort of represented. So there is that kind of interesting pluralism, right? That is celebrated kind of in mid-century America. Atlantic City, I think it is you know, both benefits and helps to produce that. So again, I don't think it's an accident, right? You have the Rat Pack, Mm -hmm. that kind of paradigm of pluralistic America finding its way in Atlantic City, you know, Martin Lewis get together. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Ben, you want to say anything about Atlantic City? Uh, I saw some (laughs) cool pictures of it on Twitter. Uh, is this what is it? Oh, uh, we're just doing an interview with Andrew about Atlantic City. Oh, I saw some pictures on Twitter of uh, like a abandoned, like a house with no houses next to it, uh, in front of the Borgata. Oh, uh, the, 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 the poverty post, like near um, have you ever seen that picture? Yeah, the mayor one time said to call it the tale of two cities picture, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, and you were warned about that tale of two cities, right? <laughs> yeah, like not yeah. to present this very yeah, distinct like too cheap, picture too cheap and easy right hey ben there's some um like white bean stew on the stove all right yeah did you read the citizen's rest story yeah it's good 
I love yeah, this. We're going to keep this in. That was Brian's son. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. This is a good oral history now. Um, but yeah, well, so... he's, part, he's part of this story, by the way. Oh, yeah. Um, how? Okay. Hold on to that question because we'll be right back. But first, a word from our sponsor. Um, I had been thinking about after I wrote my first book and I was um, just getting tenure at the University of Georgia, I was kind of thinking about, you know, what I was going to do for a second book. And I had in the back of my mind writing about the last lynching in South Carolina. And then I had this Atlantic City project. And um, I decided to do the Atlantic City project because he was just born and I wanted him and I wanted to spend some time with my parents. So I actually kind of kind of moved the project kind of that part of my life in part. So he could sort of, he was really little at the time. Like he was maybe, I think he was like six weeks old when we wow. did like a, um, a sabbatical stint in Atlantic, Atlantic City, or maybe that was a sh short visit, but he, it, there was one point when he was really young that I was on, we moved to Atlantic City for like six months to, um, so I could do the research. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. So can you explain that process of, first, how long did it take you from start to finish to get out Boardwalk of Dreams? Um, well, I was teaching full time, and so... I think it was seven or eight years. I mean, but you know, there's like, yeah, no, that's hopeful. I like hearing <laughs> that because it can, I do remember it like, can he, take he, a he while. Was, he was, he was about to be born. And I remember I was like, um, I, um, frantically trying to wrap up some microfilm research in Georgia. So I would like be able to do it, but you know, it, it, um, the process of writing an academic book is, you finish right and it goes out for peer review well mm -hmm. the you know, reviewers sit on it for a while and i had really good peer reviewers and they had lots of really good suggestions but you know a good suggestion is not a one-day rewrite mm -hmm. it might mean more research and so i probably went back i remember i went back to atlantic city for a while um and did some more research and and went so, to one of the gems of Atlantic City. I think it's one of the prettiest sites in Atlantic City is the library, just this beautiful marble building. And oh, um, you mean the I have, old, the old Carnegie Library? Because oh yeah, the, that one is abandoned now. The old, that, the old but it also library. has that really interesting little civil rights civil rights walk next to it. But yeah. I did most of my research in the public library on Tennessee Avenue which was a classic public library where essentially librarians were, I mean, it was where the uncomputered went mm -hmm. to take care of. And, you know, people were shooting up in the bathroom. It was kind of like, I had a lock. There was a little room I was in, you know, I had to like, I had to lock it if I left my computer or take my computer to the bathroom with me. It was yeah. like, and you're writing um, this in the early two thousands, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I, I'm so first, I know that those who are enthusiasts of Atlantic City will be listening to this, but also um, I have friends who live in Atlantic City or, you know, near Atlantic City. And, you know, my experience with Atlantic City is I started going there. So now I'm 29. 
I started going to Atlantic City when I was probably eight. I don't know. I would go every year because my mom is a, um, a teacher? high school teacher. Yes. And she would go <laughs> to the teacher's convention. And right. I used to just go all around to the outlets and um, have seen Atlantic City through the 21st century phases, which has changed a lot. Like I remember right. um, what it was like when the outlets were first built and they put a Starbucks and that was so unique. And um, when they tried to bring back the 500 club and unfortunately that didn't happen. Um, yeah. But then I've now seen it in this, exciting phase of um high demand apartments on the boardwalk right uh, showboat the casino is now a luxury apartment building um i've stayed in the ocean um i've seen that um they're actually really now it looks like investing back into what it always excited me about atlantic city which was the broadway performances that they would have on tour um, yeah. the music acts, right. That's what Atlantic city to me was always, um, known for was the entertainment. And it does seem like there's now a rejuvenation of entertainment. Um, yeah. Yeah. I don't know who's in charge. Right. I mean, I mean, we can, so right. If we want to just sort of push forward to the present, um, you know, obviously Atlantic city hits, its own kind of crisis in the 50s and 60s desperate for a change it sort of gambles on gambling and it's worth mm -hmm. reminding your listeners that when gambling first comes to Atlantic City it's the only place east of the Mississippi where you can legally gamble and you know the casinos make a lot of money in those early years but what doesn't happen and, and I think it's important to point this out is well the casinos make money and money doesn't necessarily revive the city. Mm -hmm. And so the city itself, I think, you know, by the time you discover it, right, is this constant kind of question about what it's going to become, right? Yeah. Um, it's that Disneyfication it, that you talk about where um, it almost in a way reminds me of just the phases of Times Square throughout my lifetime. I think Times Square is probably a better analogy, right? Because some doesn't some people in Atlantic City are in favor of a kind of disnification, but they can't fully repress the city itself, mm -hmm. like Times Square, right? You know, there are people who are kind of want to reimagine Times Square, and they do, you know, to, to many extent. But 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 there's always the actual city pushing into it, right, and pushing against it and crossing it, and mm -hmm. um, and so you have something like the walk right which sort of embraces the city but kind of turns its back on the city at the same time right um mm -hmm. and i think you have this this kind of dance um that's also happening against the backdrop of increased competition right so atlantic city finds itself having gone all in on gambling and gambling being a harder industry to sustain a place mm -hmm. and now they're trying to figure out how to bring in families so there's talks right now i'm sure you've heard about this about an indoor water park and um which yeah. i think is a great idea it's just um you know things that i've seen that the city hasn't has lost is the unique peers have kind yeah. of fallen except for steel pier i actually and i'll admit i do love shopping i was really excited when they brought in the uh, pier shops and then they had an indoor golf, an indoor mini golf. They had right. a fountain, um, 
a fountain show with lights that faded away um, because then now they turned into an underground comedy club, which really has two comedy clubs and the stores are gone. Um, and I mean, you do hint, right? You hint towards um, the former president's Taj Mahal. Um, right. And I was very, and I'm going to admit my bias here. I was very excited when they took down the plaza and I walked by and it wasn't there. Uh, the Rainforest Cafe survived. So good for the Rainforest. Uh, yeah, we'll I love it. They're, the Rainforest was so determined. They're like, we're going to keep this. <laughs> you better yeah, bulldoze around us. It's still open. Yeah. It's so funny. I, I, yeah. I think you're on to like, I mean, Atlantic City is in a weird quandary and has been in a weird quandary for a long time, right? It's it sort of is. It it can't give up the casino business mm -hmm. and making the city safe for casinos, but it needs at some point to recognize the limits of that. And I think, you know, one way to go is, and you're kind of suggesting is to embrace the past is to really invest heavily in the boardwalk to because that's, what's unique about Atlantic city, right? No place. I mean, no place has a boardwalk as long as wide. As it's the oldest in the country. Yeah. All the food too, the, and you get, you get to this definitely throughout your book, Brian, is that multi-ethnic cuisine. I mean, um, my friend who lives in Gardner's Basin, I hope she's listening. Hi, Tamara. Uh, Cause she has a long legacy with Atlantic city um, with her family and told me a lot about the segregated history of the nightclubs and how black audiences would have to go at a certain time to see the nightclub act and then have to leave. And um, right. I know you talk about that too, but I mean, I remember when my parents and I, we had our, um, I think it was a Christmas Eve dinner um, in a Vietnamese restaurant. And there's so many excellent Vietnamese restaurants, Chinese restaurants, Creole, um, right. any kind of cuisine you want, right? There's a, um, kosher restaurant that i ate at bubby's in Ventnor. Yeah, I think that's gone yeah that that's yeah. gone uh, no I, the, the but atlantic city you know i say this in my book like it 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 does not want to embrace its kind of multi-ethnic dimensions um I, I mean i think the the thing that's interesting now is that oh is the opening of a branch of Stockton State University, the Stockton University, the, um, which used to be oh, yeah. exclusively in Epsikin, right. where the high school used to be on the boardwalk. Yeah. You know, will that be a kind of seed for growth? Again, it, it, I think that has some promise to it. I think high-speed rail is important so that people mm -hmm. can commute to Philly. Um, I don't know if that budget's going to pass. So yeah. I've um, taken the Greyhound from Port Authority in Manhattan to Atlantic City. I loved it. Um, and again, most of my my New York City friends love Atlantic City. Like it's yeah. and maybe we should talk about this because it's something growing up in South Jersey, especially in an upper middle class. Washington Township has a certain reputation. No, I'm not trying to throw shade, but I know like there's a certain type of reputation of i mean the town was even nicknamed the premier community by the one of the mayors which is an interesting nickname um kind of it's a little narcissistic in my opinion but um i know anytime my parents and i would go 
there was always from their white friends, some of them, um, oh, be careful of Atlantic City. You know, um, it's not safe there. And all this panic from the suburban people. But when I talk about Atlantic City to, you know, New Yorkers in the city or even Philadelphians, a lot of there's, I mean, maybe some of them are fearful, but I feel like it is a very cosmopolitan, like it really draws people from cities. Um, I mean, it was an urban fantasy. Yeah, it was an urban fantasy from the start, right? This, this was not a bucolic dream. And um, I, th I think that that has a certain resonance with hipsters, right? Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. And it has a certain resonance. It's remade a niche for 20 something kind of clubbing, right? Mm -hmm. Both at the Borgata and at you know, I guess the hard rock, what used to be the Taj, right? Um, and Harris after hours. Harris after. So like there's these kind of audiences, but I do think it probably has that reputation in Washington Township and other places like as a, as a family place to go. Like it isn't a ton going on, right? Um, in, in, that, in that sense. And right, it, it's diverse. And, and well, there are certain parts of America who celebrate diversity. There are others that, that run from diversity. And, you know, Atlantic City is not going to win with that group. Yeah, um, I know. You know, and gambling itself attracts, right? Like, you know, gamblers are, you know, uh, gamblers, right, are a, a particular crowd. They run across class and racial lines. Yeah, intersect um, many communities. Yeah, too. but they're also, you know, kind of hard boiled at times. Yeah, like, but, um, which is funny when I say I'm vacationing for a week. And I did one of my first trips during the pandemic when I felt okay to do it was in November, last November, to go to the Wyndham for a week. Loved it. Um, and just did all my writing in the room and then would go to resorts to get food. I would walk to one of those famous pizza places. Oh, it's in that historic farmer's market building, if you know what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, excellent. Right. This is basically promo for all the businesses. The food is delicious. Did, in you go to Tony, did you go to Tony Bologna's? No, I didn't do that. Yeah, you no, I do go to White House sometimes, the subs. Yeah, yeah. Place. Um, um, yeah. You know, there's that line from um, Sex in the City, right, where it's not, I guess it's Samantha. I can't remember where like, she said she's going to Atlantic City and her friends say, well, what did you do wrong? Right. Oh, interesting. <laughs> Um, you know, it, I think it does, I think you have a cultivated taste for it. That is probably not the mainstream kind of representation of Atlantic city, which is of a place that's seen better days. Yeah. Well, and you said a lot of, um, right. The oral histories you were doing, you would hear a lot of that refrain of, oh, if you were only here in such and such an era, but right. Isn't that also depending on the positionality of that person who says that, like if they're hearkening back to the fifties, you know, if you're white and you're saying, Oh, it would have been wonderful in the fifties. It wasn't necessarily a glamorous time for all the people living in Atlantic city. 
That's the funny thing about it. Yeah, definitely white, white ethnics would say. And then they started saying that as soon as casinos came, right? And and, and in a lot of ways it wasn't, right? Like I can I can only imagine like as someone I can only imagine how much fun Atlantic City was in the 50s, right? Like with those kind of beautiful hotels. But you know, interestingly enough, there's a really important strand of nostalgia in the black community um for segregated atlantic city and probably the embodiment of that to a certain extent was chicken bone beach mm. which um was the segregated beach and then um some people kind of used that to start a jazz kind of series but they were like kind of welcoming people back to atlantic city wow. where is that now chicken like, bone where... beach is right in front of convention hall right because that oh, okay. was, why is it there because there's no hotel there Right. That's why oh, that's okay. that's exactly why. Um, and and they were as some communities are. And, you know, this, the scholarship is reflecting this a time when, you know, black people own their own businesses. Right. Um, when segregation meant that, you know, white people stayed out. Right. And, and that provided some opportunities. And so there was actually a kind of interesting conversation in Atlantic City in the 70s and 80s between some people who were in some ways kind of remembering that segregated past and that ability that that kind of the black owned businesses and some of the leaders in the NAACP and other organizations were like hey hold on a second we're celebrating something we don't want and there's a fairly rich scholarship debating this point and 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 so so they're not celebrate you know right they're not celebrating injustice they are mm -hmm. just celebrating well you know there's a little bit too like this is before crime hit there's a little bit of that like mm -hmm. kind of nostalgia white and black for an older city less besieged yeah like the last good times is the other book that i've turned to right and that's the yeah. that's all about the rat pack and right was it the 500 club is that yeah yeah okay skinny um, tomato is okay like yeah, yeah. And even, I mean, when I stayed at the Claridge, I have to tell you this while I'm with you. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to the rooftop of the Claridge, but there's I an, haven't. okay. Well, when you're back in Atlantic city, do it because it's called the view, which yeah. I, everyone at the Claridge, um, I talk to them on Instagram. Um, and <laughs> when you stay at, if you go to the rooftop at the Claridge, um, there's the penthouse right above you. And when I was sitting out there in July with my parents, um, you know, the manager came out and we just asked, oh, is this the penthouse? And she said, oh, yeah, uh, this is where Marilyn Monroe stayed and Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and they even said that the ghost of Marilyn Monroe is haunting the Claridge. And I said, oh, go with that with your promotions. <laughs> like, but it was true. Marilyn Monroe toured or no, no, she led the Miss America parade. Yeah. Um, and there is so much. And also, you know, Marilyn Monroe um, was an advocate for Ella Fitzgerald um, to have Ella Fitzgerald play in white only clubs. So there is this really I think there's so much history about racial integration and Atlantic City continuing to question itself, like you say, as a tourist mecca or what it means to be middle-class. And I think there are so many directions Atlantic City can go. And I I guess I just see these, um, 
articulations of what it will, what it can be, which is even when I see the sign on the Ritz, that this is the centennial of it opening. And I'm thinking there's so much roaring 20s history and there's, you know, the Claridge went in that direction, right? They're now really built as a roaring 20s type of establishment. And I think it works. I think it's really exciting history. I mean, giving tours of the Claridge, they don't do that right now, but I think there should be historic tours of Atlantic City. That's a real... I would go right away, and I think there's a guy, there's a yeah. guy um, who does them in Summers Point, and he try he has his pop up museum, um, and you know there there is a, a, a an exhibit of Atlantic City history. It was closed for a while. It used to be on Garden Pier, and it was it's basically the collection of Vicky Gold Levy, who um, is is the kind of one of the important kind of keepers of the Atlantic city history. Her father was the official photographer of Atlantic city. Wow. Kind of, and Vicki has a really extensive collection and she's sensitive to like a lot of the nuances in the city's history, which some of the people aren't right. Like some people, when I finished my book, were kind of like, why are you talking about this stuff? Hmm. Like, you know, it was great. And let's just stick to that. Hmm. um and the casinos killed it or you know like there were i got vicky wasn't is, is not like that well like even you talking about the queer subculture as a queer literary person i study whitman wild uh, a lot of queer poetics um and i was so excited you talk about that history because it also came up when you're talking about um Black clubs and the queerness there. And it really hearkened or reminded me of um, the Harlem Renaissance in Manhattan. And I'm going to be teaching Nella Larson's passing. And a lot of, like, there's a lot of these intersectionalities or even Langston Hughes's poems. And like that history is present in Atlantic City. I think, right, it's important that it's not under in the shadows anymore or hidden under the surface. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think two things are important. Again, I mean, again, I think like that there is this kind of official stage for middle class culture for much of the 20th century. And then there's backstage. And the fact that Atlantic City offered both, right, allowed it to become a convention town. And um, but the other thing I think the other part of that story, I think, is for me was really important is the way in which we talk about decline. And that's often a really white centered narrative, right? When white people leave places are in decline, but, you know, that decline created an opportunity for kind of emerging and really diversified kind of queer summer life. It never was a year round thing, right? But it was like a place to go. And, and I thought what was so great about, right, um, Atlantic City was that it was a big enough business to have diversification in its attractions, right? Mm-hmm. So you had like a kind of Western bar, you know, a place, you know, like drag queens, but there was disco, right? Like, you know, and so different sexualities and identities within, it was really men, right? The gay community would mm-hmm. um, existed. And then that gets obliterated by gambling, right? This community that sort of had remade itself, had tapped into the city's history, had added value in a moment where, right, of emptiness just gets obliterated. 
Yeah. I mean, I guess um, what does happen with the casinos is um, gay cruising with the different uh, spas, right? So like the male only spaces. And I mean, that's a very Vegas, right? Yeah. History too with casinos. But um, I mean, now, especially because I am gay, but um, I know that Atlantic City, there's certain areas on the beach that is more queer friendly. Um, I mean, I think overall Atlantic City is a very queer friendly place for the Jersey Shore. It's interesting. It's interesting now, right? Like, um, you know, so there was always a kind of queer subtext in the Miss America pageant. And, and I'm willing to believe, you know, I haven't done this research, but it goes back into the 30s and 40s, right? I'm sure. And, you know, it takes a more public form in the 60s. But the city was kind of, the city in the 60s and 70s didn't really know what to do with mm. its own kind of queer community. But now, like in the in the in the 2000s, it began to embrace it, right? And I and I think you know, I mean, there is something to Atlantic City, right? Like it's a place that understands money, and um, yeah, and I think it's also a place that any good resort town identities are pretty fluid, mm-hmm. right? Even you know, in straight, I just remember spending, and I knew I understood this kind of from my own experience. I remember spending all my summers in Cape May and um, this is woman I knew and I kind of knew her in Cape May as kind of hip and um, and then I saw her like during the school year we were both like undergrads and she showed up in like complete 80s era preppy and it was clear right that and I remember wearing I would wear different clothes when I was in Cape May that I might not dare wear like I didn't feel emboldened enough to wear right um in my college life and i think that ability to kind of slip your identity is important for resort towns and performative yeah and places that have real imagination to like i i don't think it's probably an accident right that atlantic city was a place that art was created as well right i mean it needs that kind of freedom and it had it at various points. And I think that that still exists there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, as we wrap up, I have to, my dad wanted to ask a fan question um, about your just feeling of regarding Boardwalk Empire, right? I think the general public, that's probably the most well-known. I mean, there is the Atlantic City film with Susan Sarandon. That's the best the, cultural yeah, product. I really I love, love that film. Like not even close, right? And then yeah. it would be King of Marvin Gardens. Okay. So yeah. yeah, what is it about Boardwalk Empire, right? I mean, that was a great marketing campaign for Atlantic City. But yeah. what it it does seem like there's the thirst for the mob stories, and you even get into this, right? It's that Sopranos like quality yeah. that sells. I, I actually don't think in the end Boardwalk Empire is very much about Atlantic City. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, I mean, it is historically located in a time and place. And, and, and I want to make two points to your dad. Uh, one is there's a there's a crucial mistake in the staging. And, and I only say this is like somebody into Atlantic City. This is like, um, but, but how it misunderstands Atlantic City. And you will know this. Which way to the benches point on the boardwalk in Atlantic City? 
Oh, do the benches point? Okay, yeah. so the benches are always. So if the wa- the beaches and the water is in one direction, the benches are always opposite. Not opposite, but they face away from it. Right, because why? Yeah. In Atlantic City, the action's on the boardwalk. Yeah, it's people That's watching. That's the stage. Mm. In the show, the benches point towards the ocean. Oh, yeah, no. Me, mm. that was a fundamental misunderstanding of mm. the city, right? That, yeah. that, again, you know, which is fine, right? Like that, and... So I just like, that's like, to me, the tell of like, it's Mm. feel for the place that it's really, so it's really about this mobster story and about the kind of like violence, right. That is sort of reigning in this moment. And that's a kind of interesting story, but I also don't think that's totally Atlantic city story. I mean, I think in some ways the mob was so powerful, like it wasn't the mob, right. It was the syndicate, you know, it was basically the numbers organization that Nucky Johnson ran. Well, he was so good at it. He gave everybody a piece that they didn't really need to be that violent, right? Like, mm-hmm. like, like that. And, and Atlantic City isn't a wash during that. It, it's a wash in this kind of comfortable corruption that is actually not very interesting at the end of the day, right? Or like, it's just ordinary, but it's ordinariness was complete. Everybody got a piece, like Jews, Italians, Irish, the black community, like, you know, the, the Michael K. Williams character, right? Chalky white. But Nucky was so effective at giving out the pieces that they weren't, they didn't really war with each other. Yeah. And there was occasionally like outside, you know, warring. Yes. And there were political attempts to kind of rein in corruption in Atlantic City, but in the end, actually, corruption was kind of good for Atlantic City. Mm. It, its ability to do a couple of things. One was to, dep- to deliver an absolutely dependable Republican vote statewide, gave it some power. And the, and the machine delivered that vote. And that power meant like Atlantic City still has 24-hour drinking, right? The luxury tax and the parking taxes that allowed it to raise revenues they were special exemptions that were a product, right, in some way of the machine's power, the building the Atlantic City Expressway. So that less interesting history, I think, is kind of more is more apt if you but that's you know not the basis of a well, it's a basis of a multi-series show that is more, you know, about the everyday. Mm-hmm. And ask more of the audience, and I think Boardwalk Empire was willing to do. And certainly, as the show moved on, right? Like I, I kind of—I don't know how your dad felt. I kind of lost interest. Like in season, I remember thinking, "Oh, I have to watch professionally, not because I'm actually interested." After a while, yeah, yeah. And um, I also just think I'm so drawn, as you can hear me talking about the um, celebrities, but also just all of these communities that would come together. And I mean, this one anecdote always has astounded me, which is Irving Berlin was staying in a home in St. Leonard's tract in Ventnor and was playing at the piano, supposedly, but I believe it was playing his Broadway compositions because he had just married um, one of the Mackie uh, socialites and she was from this very wealthy family who um, 
lived on Long Island in Roslyn in a mansion, but then she was actually uh, thrown out for marrying Irving Berlin because she was Protestant. He's Jewish. I think eventually the father, once Irving Berlin makes a lot of success, does accept them back. And I'm always thinking, wow, this would be such an interesting film or, you know, right. Even Marilyn Monroe in Atlantic city or all of these, there are so many stories. Didn't Jay-Z also own a house? Like the the rumor is he owned a house in St. Leonard's track. I think I've heard that. And I've also heard an Estee Lauder. Um, Oh, Estee Lauder founder. Pearlman definitely had a house in the boardwalk. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there are, there's so many, that's what I think keeps me coming back to Atlantic city. Michael Jordan was there this summer. Oh, wow. Wow. Yes. Yes. That's right. My, um, I think my parents were actually staying there when he, when the whole basketball team was, there was a whole basketball team. No, no, he went, he was in a fishing competition. Oh, he was in a fishing. Okay. Cause there was, he went, and then he went to Stephen Cookies in, in Margate. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So, but that's like the new celebrity scene. Oh, yeah. Stephen Cookies is where the scene is. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah. So, no, I've loved this so much, Brian. Um, oh, thanks. For, I think, thanks for- yeah. I mean, there's so many questions I could keep asking, but I think, you know, anyone who wants to have such a 20th to early 21st century understanding of Atlantic city needs to read your book. Um, because they're really, like I said, there's the last good times, but I don't really know of other Atlantic city, like full historiographical accounts of Atlantic city. By the beautiful sea, which does the early period. I mean, yeah. Um, but thanks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, so no, thank you so much. And, um, I hope everyone out there, you know, they've all learned a lot about Atlantic City and there's, you know, I know you've even, I have to plug, uh, Brian's even written about um, the history of Starbucks with everything but the coffee, learning about America from Starbucks. So, you know, maybe you could be reading that when you're in the Starbucks. There's actually <laughs> a lot of Starbucks now in Atlantic City, one on the right. boardwalk. So right. maybe I'll buy your book, take a picture of it and <laughs> be outside of Starbucks. I'll be as meta as possible. Um, All right. Well, Good. thank you so much, Brian. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the last 2021 Ivory Tower Boiler Room episode. So it would mean so much if you make sure that you follow our podcast, share it on your social media handles subscribe, like it. Um, If you can, please support us. There is a donate button at the bottom of our show notes. It means a lot. As I said, we have an upcoming Patreon where you will be getting extra content and merchandise. So that'll be really exciting. We'll have official Ivory Tower Boiler Room subscribers in 2022. So exciting. Um, I want to thank you all for being part of our journey this last year. I want to personally thank the Ivory Tower Boiler Room team. If I did not have this team, this Public Humanities podcast would not be where it is right now. So I want to thank Mary DePippi, my chief contributor. Thank you, Mary. I want to thank Jaren Usta, our marketing director. Thank you, Jaren. M. make sure you follow us on our social media handles. Instagram at Ivory Tower Boiler Room, Twitter at Ivory Boiler Room, and our new TikTok at Ivory Tower Boiler Room. 
Thank you personally to Anne Sophie Anderson, who's provided so much music from her astrological seasons where we've featured different seasons. Mary uses uh, Scorpio and True Crime and Academia. I've used Scorpio and Sagittarius. Today's episode featured Loverman, which is just such a nice cafe, tranquil soundtrack. So thank you so much, Sophie. It means so much that you've been part of this community. Okay, well, happy rest of your 2021. Here is a cheers to a 2022 where all of our dreams are manifested. I wish that for all of you out there. Bye, everyone.